I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. If I were to approach you and ask you to share with me the gospel from Scripture, where would you take me? Some of you would no doubt take me, a lot of you, most of you, uh, to the Gospels, maybe to the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, but how many of you would take me to the book of Judges? Probably none of you, right? Well, that's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 6. Today we are focusing in on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from the story of Gideon. We are continuing our study through the book of Judges this morning and we are in the main section of the book that tells the story of the different judges the Lord sends to deliver his people. And uh, Two guys that we're going to look at in particular that that received the most real estate in the book are Gideon and Samson, okay? So this morning we're focusing on Gideon. We're going to be focusing on Gideon's story for the next several weeks. We're going to look at his call, his rise, and then his fall. We have already discussed and witnessed that the period of the judges was a dark one. In, in the history of God's people, that's putting it lightly. Yet we will also see God's amazing grace, we have seen and will see His amazing grace shine through this book. We get glimpses of God's gospel and the work needed to redeem mankind from sin and death in Gideon's story. So let's take a closer look this morning at God's gospel from the story of Gideon. In Judges chapter and Judges six, first point I want you to see here is this point number one: man has sinned against God, and God has graciously set Himself against man. Yes, I said graciously. This is an important point in God's gospel message and the first point in Gideon's story. Listen to verse 1 of Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You say, again? Yes, again. We need to be saying it in our own lives as well, right? And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. We we see here in Judges 6, verse 1, this Cycle continue, the cycle of sin and judgment and repentance and salvation. The last line in Judges 
5 is, And the land had rest for 40 years. After God rescues His people Israel and graciously gives them rest for 40 years, they forsake Him again. They turn away from Him. We're told they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We will learn later in this chapter and all throughout the book that they served idols. They turned away from God. They set themselves against Him and went after the Canaanite gods. They should have driven them out. They didn't do that. So they remained along with their wicked influences and God's people are led astray. Praise be to God, He doesn't forsake them, right? No, instead, He graciously disciplines them. This time, by way of the Midianites. The Midianites were great enemies of God's people Israel. God uses this pagan and nomadic tribe to drive the Israelites out of the land. While the Midianites do not seem driven politically, they are driven agriculturally. They don't seem all that concerned with ruling over Israel as they do seizing and consuming their resources, which is actually worse. We're told in verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey." For they would come up with their, with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The Midianites drove God's people Israel to the mountains. They, they took their land, they took their crops, they took their livestock. The author of Judges describes them as locusts. Those of you who know your Old Testament, you know that in other parts of Scripture, God would send literal locusts to destroy crops as judgment toward His people for their wickedness. Here He sends the Midianites, and they do a similar work. God's people were an agrarian people. They lived off the land. Losing the produce of their land, losing livestock, was one of the worst things imaginable for them. We've got to really take a step into their world because we're thinking, well, if something happens to my garden out back, I go to Walmart, right? Not the the option for them. These crops and these animals were all they had to live on. The Midianites wiped them out and were told it was the Lord who gave them into the hand of the Midianites. God is behind this. He is using their enemies to invade their land. And while that sounds unloving and cruel, this act is the most kind and gracious act God could have done for this nation that is straying from them, from him. This is the most gracious thing that God could have done for them. We're told that the soul that sins, it dies, right? A life lived apart from and opposed to God is cursed. Think about the Israelites here. 
Because God brings judgment down on them for their sin, they are left homeless, hungry, and humiliated. God graciously allows for his people to experience this so they will stray no further and will cry out to him. To prevent his people from drifting any further from him, God strips them of their most basic needs and he leaves them in a helpless and hopeless state, hiding in dens in the mountains, humiliated by their enemies. We're told Israel was brought very low because of Midian. God graciously allows for his people to be brought to this point so they will be left with one of two options. Remain miserable in their their wicked and wayward state and continue to suffer to the point of death or cry out to him and be rescued and given life. Where are you this morning? Am I describing you? Maybe you're here, maybe you're, you're, you're listening online and to this point in your life, you're living your life apart from and opposed to God and you're miserable. You've gotten to the point where you're seeking happiness in the things of this world and you're coming up empty left and right. Praise God for that. That's a good place to be if you're at your wit's end. You know what Psalm 107 says? They reeled to and fro and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cry out to God and he hears their cry and he delivers them from their distresses. Maybe God has graciously allowed you to suffer to the point of submission to him. I pray you would look to the Lord that you would forsake your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. Believers, maybe you know someone who is pursuing happiness in this life under the sun, and they have not yet reached that point of being homeless and hungry and humiliated. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to pray, God, do whatever it takes to bring the ones drifting from you to your feet? I invite you to pray that. God, do whatever it takes. God's judgment is his mercy. It is. The past acts of God's judgment and the promise of his coming judgment, that's his mercy. It's meant to stop us in our tracks and redirect us toward him and away from sin. Those pursuing happiness in the things of this world and coming up empty are in a great place if they forsake sin and cry out to God. If this is where you are, this is your invitation this morning. Cry out to God. God's people, Israel, do this. They cry out to God, but at first, they don't do it for the right reasons. They need God's word to bring them to true repentance, and that's point number two. God gives his word to reveal the heart and produce repentance. Look at verse six. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. They cry out to God for help, and God sends a judge to save them. Is that what it says next? Say no. Look at it. God breaks the repetitive cycle here for good reason. Instead of sending them a savior, he sends them a preacher, he sends them a prophet. 
Look at verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So while the the Israelites cry out to God, their cry is because they're in agony because of sin. They are grieving the consequences of sin and not the sin itself, and not the fact that they have sinned against holy God. So God sends them a prophet to give them a quick history lesson to share with them who God is and who they are. They are sinners set against God. They are idolaters who have rejected the God who created them and saved them to serve serve Him. They needed to hear that in order to be truly repentant. And we need to hear that as well. There are people who are grieving their lot in life. Their miserable situation as a result of sin. That's not true repentance. It's not. There are people who desperately want rescue from sin's consequences who do not want God. Who are are not sorry for their sin and not seeking a renewed and restored relationship with the Lord of all creation who is the only rescue for sinners. That's the Israelites to this point. That is why God sends them a preacher. He sends them a prophet. They need God's word that teaches the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of man, and man's great need of a Savior. They need to know that they've sinned against holy God and how he has graciously provided a way of rescue so they will forsake their sin and so that they will trust in him and be saved. That's God's aim here in sending this prophet. Timothy Keller said this in his commentary on Judges. Look at this quote on the screen. God sends the prophet to convict of sin before he sends the judge to rescue from oppression because the people are regretful but not repentant. The Bible makes a clear distinction between the two. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Have you truly repented of your sin? Have you come to the realization that your sin is an offense against holy God? Have you turned from that sin? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation? Listen, those who only seek God's help from difficult circumstances will leave Him when times get good. Happens all the time. It does. People must come to the realization that they have sinned against holy God and that God has provided their only way of escape through His Son Jesus and that they will perish unless they repent and trust in Him. That is why teaching and preaching the Bible is so very important. I've talked with people in the past outside of this church who are critical of churches like these who spend so much time studying the word chapter by chapter and verse by verse and will will, will say things like you need to stop talking so much about the things of God and get busy doing them. No, we need to do both. 
we got to do both, right? First, we need to know and grow in our knowledge of who God is, who we are, and what He has called us to do, or we will continue to make the same mistakes made by those who have gone before us. Right thinking, biblical thinking, leads to right believing, which leads to right living. That's the way it works. God's Word is needed for man to know his sinfulness and his need for rescue. Next point. God rescues man from sin and death and restores him by way of a redeemer. That's the next point in this story and, and a key point in God's gospel story. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Pretty smart move there, right? They're, they're taking up all their crops, so he's, he's in hiding doing what he can. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon looked around, right? I'm the only one here. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So notice here that, that, that while the Lord sends his prophet to teach his people of their sin and their need of rescue, he is already working a plan of rescue. Do you see that? Even before they respond, salvation is a work that God does. He does it while we're still sinners. That's an important gospel point. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? He demonstrated his love for the people of Israel in that while they were still sinners, he commissions Gideon to save Israel from the hand of Midian. God's grace is on display in the book of Judges. This encounter with Gideon is unique. The angel of the Lord came to him and at first just watched him from a distance beat out wheat from the wine press. Again, unique place to beat out wheat. They usually did this out in the open and in an elevated place that helped the process. Remember, they're being targeted for their, their crops by the Midianites, so they had to harvest wheat in a less obvious and more conspicuous place. This place is not hidden from the Lord though, right? He knows exactly who he's looking for and exactly where to find him. He finds Gideon and when he speaks to him, he addresses him in a way that's very, very surprising to Gideon. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The word valor is the Hebrew word hayil, which refers to one who has strength and is skilled, a mighty warrior. He, he calls this man Gideon, who is hiding in the shadows, a strong and skilled warrior. And he calls for him to rise up and save Israel. This is a big ask. Because the Midianites were some of the Israelites' worst enemies, right? Gideon here is going to show his lack of faith by questioning the Lord on two points. One, on whether God is truly with his people. And two, on whether he is fit to save Israel. 
First, he questions God's presence with his people. He basically says, if the Lord is with us, then why is our land, why has it been taken over by the Midianites? Why are we hiding in caves? Why isn't he at work with us like he was with our fathers before us? He brought them out of Egypt. Why has he forsaken us now? Why has he given us into the hand of the Midianites? You ever ask questions like that? Lord, if you're real... Why am I suffering as I am? Why is the world the way that it is? If you're present, why does it feel as if you're absent? Is this sounding familiar? Why does it feel as if you have favored the previous generations over this one? Why are you not bringing revival today like you did in the past? The Lord lets Gideon know you are questioning me and here I am commissioning you to do this work. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Gideon is saying, If you're with us, why are we suffering as we are? The Lord says to him, Here I am to save Israel, and I'm going to use you to do it. Gideon, Gideon, I'm providing an answer to your concerns, and the answer is you. I want to use you to deliver Israel. That's what Gideon had to realize. He has all these concerns and is wondering what God is doing and what he's going to do about it, and he finds that the answer is him. And then Gideon questions him further about whether or not he possesses the might to save Israel. He questions whether he is truly a man of valor. Look at verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon feels as if he needs to remind the Lord as if the Lord needed reminding who he is. I'm a nobody from nowhere. He didn't have authority in the home, much less with his clan, much less in his tribe, much less amongst God's people. How will he deliver them? The Lord tells him, look at verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The Lord gives insight into how he works in the story of redemption. He delights in using the lowly and the unlikely nobodies from nowhere for his kingdom purposes to show his strength and weakness and his power to deliver his people. That's your truth for the week in your study guide. He tells Gideon, you're thinking of man's inability, not God's capability. You are going to do this great work because I have called you and I will be with you. As a result, you will strike the Midianites as one man. Ever question God in your time alone in prayer only to realize he wants you to be the answer to your prayer? Oftentimes that's the case. Lord, why aren't you bringing revival to my family? Lord, why does it feel as if you're not at work in this community? Lord, why are things so dark? Why have you not sent someone to bring the light of your gospel to this dark and dead world? Want to know the Lord's response? Here I am. Do not I send you? 
Have I not called you? And then some will respond with, well, Lord, I didn't mean me. You know? <laughs> That's how we'll respond. Ah, you know, I, I need someone more qualified. You know who you sound like? Sound like the mighty man of valor, Gideon. You know what the Lord's response is then? Verse 16, I will be with you. I'll be with you. We need to be reminded of this, reminded of the fact that in Scripture, it is men like Gideon selected for service in God's kingdom ministry. Godly leaders are often unlikely people in Scripture. Just go through and look at it. It's true. Godly leaders, mark that down. Godly leaders are often unlikely people in Scripture. God delights in using the lowly and the unlikely for His purposes. This is good news because that's who we are. Absolutely. God's strength is often magnified in weakness. That's Gideon's story. At this point, he is still not seeing it. He's having a difficult time with this calling. He wants the Lord to prove that he is the man to prove that the Lord is going to do this work in and through him. Gideon knows that he's weak. He knows he's lowly and insignificant. He wants the Lord to prove to him that he has found favor in his eyes. He wants him to prove to him that he is the one who is going to be the Savior to Israel. Look at verses 17 through 24. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Here we see Gideon is questioning whether the, this, this person addressing him is truly the angel of the Lord and whether he, Gideon, is truly God's chosen instrument for his people's redemption. Look at verse 18. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Miracle upon miracle. Then... Verse 22, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Right? He sees now. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. I love that. The Lord brings peace in the midst of turmoil, right? Comfort in the midst of sadness. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. So, Gideon seems on board now, right? He seems to be willing to be used by God to be his people's deliverer. Shouldn't be any more doubt, no more dragging of the feet from this point forward. Am I right? God has proven miraculously that Gideon is his man. Should be enough for Gideon, right? Wrong. Gideon's just like us. He is committed until the calling comes and then he begins 
to look for an easier way and tests God further. And while that's not a good thing, Gideon's actions are important for us to focus on because we often respond just like Gideon does. We really do. We'll be on board with God until the Lord calls us to do something difficult and then we begin to drag our feet. Look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. And the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So while God calls Gideon to go and fight the Midianites and deliver his people from them, first he informs Gideon that there is work to be done at home. There always is. That is exactly how God works in us, in ministry. Before we go out and minister to others, we need to first deal with the idols in our hearts and we need to minister to those around us, those in our household, close friends and family. Ron talked about this last week. Are we to hit the streets? To push back the darkness in our world with the light of the gospel? Absolutely. But it begins in the home. If you don't care about people in your own family knowing Jesus, you're not going to be broken over someone you don't know. It starts there. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. God's giving you influence that we don't have with those in your own household, with friends and family. It begins there and goes out from there. It begins with Gideon at home, right? The Lord has Gideon start at home, tearing down his father's altar and building an altar to the Lord. And Gideon, not out of a fear of being ridiculed, but out of a fear of losing his life, takes a crew with him and goes and does this work at night. Look at verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah pole beside it was cut down, and the second bull was uh, offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. That's why Gideon was scared. They wanted to kill him. You don't mess with people's idols, right? People will kill you for it. That happened to Christ. Verse 31, But Joash said to all who stood against him, who, Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jurabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So Gideon's father chooses 
his son over idols. He doesn't do that for God, unfortunately. But he does step up when his son's life is in danger. And he tells the men of the town, those wanting to kill his son, that if they contend for Baal against Gideon, they will be dead by morning. So he's threatening them. He says, let Baal contend against himself. Let Baal fight his own battles. Let him deal with the one who has broken down his altar. That logic here is sound. If a God needs saving, it does not need to be saved. Right? Guess what? They let Baal contend for himself, and guess what? Baal does nothing to Gideon. You know why? Because Baal is nothing. There is no Baal. An idol isn't anything but just that, an idol, a false god. And with those pagan altars out of the way, God grows his people closer to himself and also gives credibility to Gideon. He's given the nickname Baal Crusher, which gets to his head later, I think. But he contended with Baal and he won. Look at verses 33 to 35. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Gideon became the leader of God's people, just as God had said. We'll learn next week, after God makes some major modifications to Gideon's army, he is going to use Gideon and these men to deliver his people Israel in the most unlikely of ways, showing that he is the one at work, so that he receives all the glory. God will rescue them from their enemies by way of his Redeemer, and He does the exact same thing for us. He rescues us from sin and death and restores us to Himself by way of a true and better Redeemer. And that leads us to our last point. While we learn in the story of Gideon that God saves His people by way of Gideon, we also learn from Gideon's life that we are in need of another Redeemer because Gideon is a broken Savior. Last point, God's perfect Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 36 through 40. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Boy, he is really testing it here. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and all the ground there was dew. 
Now, be honest. When reading that, considering what we've just read, how many of you are thinking to yourself, come on, Gideon. Come on, man. I thought we were all past this testing God to see whether he will save his people by your hand business. The angel of the Lord has come to you, performed this great miracle before you, and now you have all these nations gathering under your command. What more do you want? A wet fleece on dry ground and then a dry fleece on wet ground? Seriously? We learn here God's very gracious to Gideon, right? Throughout Scripture, we see God respond to a lack of faith at times with punishment, severe punishment. But here we see him dealing graciously with this faithless Savior. Aren't you glad he does? Have you ever doubted God when you had no reason to? We never have a reason to doubt God, do we? How many times have we witnessed God care for us and carry us through difficulty only to question whether he will do it again? We we do that all the time, don't we? Praise be to God. He's gracious with us. He was with Gideon. Gideon is a faithless Savior, which reminds us, folks, that we are in need of one who is not. We're in need of a Savior who's not broken. We're in need of a Savior who's not sinful, one who is not weak, one who is not scared, one who is not hiding, one who does not test God, one who does not question His promises. God has sent such a Savior to us in sending us His Son. Jesus became one of us. He came to deliver us. While tempted like we are, He was without sin, perfect in word and deed. When tempted by Satan to put God to the test as to whether he is the Son of God, and when tempted to take the easy road, Jesus resisted. He trusted God completely. He crushed the idols of men and called for complete surrender to his lordship. He put his life on the line. He laid his life down in our place in order to save us. Have you experienced the salvation Christ came to give? Deliverance from sin, death, and restoration to holy God through repentance and faith in Him. If not, I invite you today, forsake your sin, place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and be saved. Let's pray together.